The Science Inside Podcast. This is the Science Inside. A very good evening and welcome to the Science Inside, bringing you the latest news stories and events happening in the world of science and technology. I am your host, Nondumi Solohutso, and I am not alone. I have my co-host, Lindo Gutletimakwe, with me. Good evening to you all and welcome to the Science Inside. So what do we have on tonight's show, Nundu? Well, this week we are checking out breast cancer in men. We are specifically looking at a new analysis confirming that men with breast cancer have lower survival rates than women. And why do they say this? Well, according to an epidemiologist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Xiao or Shu, it is because... For many diseases, women receive procedures and drugs that were largely tested in men. But in this case um, of breast cancer, the opposite is true. Men make up less than 1% of breast cancer cases and often receive treatment based on data collected in women. What's more, breast cancer in men is rapidly rising. The Breast Health Foundation revealed six years ago that South Africa has the highest male breast cancer rate in the world, where in every 100 people, two people are diagnosed with breast cancer. But of course, we will unpack this topic a little bit later on the show. On Unscience, we are exploring the movies and how an artificial intelligence tool is able to detect spoilers on your behalf and stop them in their tracks. So if you hate spoilers, you really don't want to miss this one. And then towards the end of the show, we will speak to a pediatric oncologist to find out about cancer in young women and how best to protect our children. But for now, we have news. What do you have on the news for us tonight, Linda Gutle? In your news-making headlines this week, the first black man to undergo a full-face transplant and UCT offers a helping hand in documenting Africa's biggest refugee crisis. Good evening, I am Linda Gushe Dimakwe. This week's Science Headline. After months of waiting for the right donor, the first African-American man to undergo a full-face transplant is recovering from a successful procedure. Robert Chelsea, a 68-year-old man from Boston, Massachusetts, finally underwent the surgery in July 2019 after a year and a half on the face transplant list. He was first offered a donor face in May 2018, but because of the skin tone was lighter than his own, he was hesitant to accept it, as fears of potentially looking like a totally different man crept in. Chelsea had led a difficult life in the past few years after being left severely disfigured after he got into an accident in August 2013 as he was driving in the fast lane on a summer night when his car overheated. He was on the side of the interstate when a drunk driver collided with his vehicle. He underwent 30 surgeries during this year and a half in the hospital, but doctors could not reconstruct his lips, part of his nose and his left ear. The lack of lips made eating and drinking extremely difficult as Chelsea had to tilt his head back for the whole process. Despite the difficulties faced during such tasks, he had no issues with waiting for the right match for his new face, even if it would be tough to find. There are a lack of black donors of any type and only 17% of African-American patients in need of an organ transplant received one in 2015, far less than the 30% of white patients who found a donor. According to 2016 statistics from the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Monetary Health, African-Americans represent a disproportionate proportionate share of the need for new organs and in part because they are at a higher risk for conditions like diabetes and high blood pressure which can lead to organ failure. 
In a statement released by Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, which performed Chelsea's transplant, Alexander Glazier, a president and CEO of New England Donor Services, urged that individuals of all races and ethnicities to consider organ donation, including the donation of external grafts such as face and hands. Unlike internal organs, the skin tone and donor may be important to finding a match. Chelsea finally got his match in July 2019 from a 62-year-old man with a near-identical skin tone who had suddenly died. After 16-hour surgery at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, requiring over 45 doctors and nurses, Chelsea became the first African-American to undergo a full-face transplant and just the 15th person nationwide. Chelsea healed at a very fast rate and was able to eat, talk and breathe on his own just after 10 days. Chelsea is currently intending on shedding light on the importance of organ donation and encourage more people to do it with his non-profit donor's dream. His experience of humanity for his own image only validated the need for helping one another. Chelsea is doing well, although still has more healing to do and has been at the hospital for follow-up care. And on to our final story. During the summer of 2016, more than one million refugees crossed the border from war-torn South Sudan into northern Uganda. Since then, as at August 2019, their numbers have been swelled by the arrival of over 800,000 more. It is the biggest refugee crisis on the continent and the third biggest in the world after Syria and Afghanistan and is the subject of a collaborative research project involving the University of Cape Town. Fortunately, the Ugandan government has shown willingness to host the large influx of people and their relevant policy stands out globally as a positive example. They have taken significant steps to allow the refugees to settle in Uganda without the need to apply for asylum. However, coping with the numbers has posed numerous challenges, especially for a developing nation. There is a dire need for health, education and welfare services in the refugee settlements where 92% of South Sudanese live. These settlements are in remote areas of the northern region where infrastructure and communication are poor. In brief, the conflict in South Sudan is characterized by severe human rights violations, including sexual and gender-based violence and torture. Reports cite very high levels of sexual abuse and torture of civilians, particularly rape of refugees by both government soldiers and rebel fighters. The rapid pace of the arrival of the refugees has left the United States on the back foot in terms of keeping up with documenting and recording the experiences. There is also an absence of research containing in-depth information and evaluation of the need of two of those survivors of SGBV and torture. The collaborative research project was undertaken by Helen Lebling, Professor Hazel Barrett from Covery University and UCT, and Professor Lillian Arts, Director of UCT's Gender, Health and Justice Research Centre. They were assisted by Fadi Gladys Kangora, Director at the Kingdom Women's Peace Initiative, a non-governmental organisation located in northern Uganda. The main objective of the project, funded by the British Academy, was to conduct a qualitative investigation using psychological health and human rights approach to study the experiences of refugees and assess the use of services available to them. In terms of health and justice, the researchers recommend better resourcing of clinics, ensuring that their physical and psychological health care staff, that the services are extended to men in particular who find it difficult to come forward. Services must also tackle drug and alcohol use particularly among youth as well as the associated domestic violence. Recapping your story this week, the first black man to undergo a full-face transplant 
trans- transplant and UCT offers a human hand or in fact a hand in documenting Africa's biggest refugee crisis. Our news stories were sourced from people.com health and the University of Cape Town website. So wow. Wow, Lindo, this is very interesting. In terms of the refugees, mm-hmm. so you're saying this, the university is helping, is really helping refugees. Is this, in, this is not in South Africa, right? It is in South Africa, while well, UCT, of course, yeah. which is the one that is documenting the whole experience. As wow. we know, it's one of the biggest, Africa's biggest refugee crisis that's being faced. Right. And... Africa's just been through a lot, especially comparing to Afghanistan and you and Sudan's um, issues. Sure. Yeah. Wow. So now we take a break before we go into our next segment for you. This is the Science Inside. Now, I understand that breast cancer in men sounds rather far-fetched, but it is a reality. So much so because men often delay seeing a doctor when they noticed un- notice unusual signs or symptoms like a breast lump. On the line, we have Professor Michael Herbst from Cancer to help us understand this reality. A very warm welcome to the Science Inside, Prof. Good evening to you and to all your listeners. Lovely to be with you. Lovely to have you. Now, Prof, what attributes to the growing number of breast cancer, especially in men? I'll tell you, you know, the figure is becoming quite disturbing. Uh, From the latest statistics that we have, we now become aware that every two days, at least five men are diagnosed with breast cancer. And that is a very scary number of, of, of men already. Right, it really is. Um, And I know that the hormone um, estrogen, which is present in both males and females, increases the risk of a male being exposed to cancer. Why is that the case? Well, it all depends on what type of breast cancer it is. You see, because uh, a breast cancer can be estrogen uh, positive, Mm -hmm. meaning that if there is uh, a little bit more estrogen, and there will be a little bit more estrogen in men who are obese, uh, that's one of the, the complications that we have from obesity. But then we can also have another type of breast cancer that is progesterone positive. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it is very much a hormonal thing. And we have really good advice to give to men so that they can better look after themselves. And please do share that advice because they won't get it coming from a woman. I mean, from a man, I'm sure it's more relatable. You know, one of the first things that I must always tell people is do not use tobacco. We know that there is a direct link between tobacco smoke and breast cancer in both males and females. And then also uh, alcohol use is also directly linked to breast cancer in both men and women. But then what is really important for men is if they have a family member, mm-hmm. and it is usually a first degree family member, like a father, a brother, an uncle, uh, maybe even a grandfather who has had breast cancer, then they should be a little bit more wary and they must do certain things which we'll uh, talk about now. But also if a man has a mother, a sister, a grandmother, an aunt who has had breast cancer, that again is another increased risk factor for men to also be possibly 
candidates for breast cancer. And here it is important if men are at high risk that they should have a test done to see whether they have the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation. Now your listeners will know all about Angelina Jolie who, because she was BRCA1 and BRCA2 positive and had a mother, an aunt, a grandmother, a sister, all who developed breast cancer. She then went and had a double mastectomy to prevent herself, hopefully, from getting uh, breast cancer. So men, as we teach women to do monthly breast self-examinations, you, and I include myself in that group, should really do exactly the same. Choose your date of birth. If you're born on the 20th of the month, every 20th, then do a breast self-examination. And we must remember that male breast self-examination is much easier than it is with women because there is far less tissue. So one can feel the lump very easily in a male breast. But remember that the breast goes all the way to the middle of the armpit. So don't only feel the front of the chest. Also go to the side and feel the breast under the armpit. That is very, very important. If you find a lump, please do not hesitate, but directly go and see a health professional. Men who are at high risk should also have regular uh, annual mammogram as we request a woman to do. Wow, Prof, this is very informative, um, very interesting. And you know how some men who are obsessed with the idea of getting buff take pills or supplements to do that. Do those by any chance play a part in making men more susceptible to breast cancer? Well, you know... Hello, Prof? Prof? seems that we have lost the prof but Lindo how do you feel about um, breast cancer while we try to get the prof back you know one issue that I think um, is the issue currently or one problem is the fact that most people don't do these regular checkups you know there's usually stigma also around men where they're like why would I be affected by breast cancer it's something that only women will go through you know so it becomes tricky when it when it when it comes to such yeah. Right. Um, can I include the technical producer here? Okay. Um, but right now, um, it's very interesting that he said that men should actually make it a habit yeah. to check on the birthdays date yeah, yeah. for whether they have breast cancer. You know, and I didn't, did you, were you aware that breast cancer actually, your breast goes up to your armpit? Okay, I actually had no idea, but it would make sense because I mean, the way the checkup is done, you kind of have to push your breast upwards, you know? Right. So, yeah, but I think we've got the prof back now. Yes, it yes. appears that we do. Prof, are you there? Yes, unfortunately, we seem to have been cut off. Oh, I'm glad I have that one you're important back. message, yes. oh, and okay. I want to speak to the women folk and say men are bad at seeking health, you know, to protect their health. Right. And I want to say to women, you have a major responsibility to look after the men 
in your life. Remind them that they don't only have a responsibility towards themselves, but Mm -hmm. also towards a wife, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, an uncle, or whoever wants them to be near them for as long as possible. Wow, thank you so much for that, Prof. Um, And you know, we're often told that rooibos tea is always a healthy decision to make. And since it has been revealed that the consumption of the tea helps decrease the risk of breast cancer, how is that the case? What does the tea have? Well, we know that there are uh, phyto uh, particles within rooibos tea that really assist in reducing the risk not only of breast cancer, but also of many of the other cancers. And uh, tea is really, a, and it's a proudly South African product. And let's support it. Yes. And let's have our tea on a regular basis rather than taking any other supplements. Because rooibos is the natural product and it is very cheap and it is available in every shop in South Africa. So, yes, you're quite right. Let's make use of our rebus tea and let that assist us to protect our bodies against various types of cancer. Okay. So now, Prof, how does the genetic syndrome that's known as Klinefelter's syndrome, um, in which a boy is born with more than one copy of the X chromosome, occur in South Africa? Uh, we have don't have a very high incidence. You're specifically now referring to Klinefelter syndrome. Okay. Uh, we we don't have, fortunately, many men with the additional X chromosome. So, but if there are somebody around, is there somebody around? They are also said to be at higher risk of breast cancer. But as I say, fortunately. We do not have many men uh, with Klinefelter syndrome who have these extra uh, X chromosomes. All right. Um, I'm very much aware of the different ways of, you know, testing for women um, for the lump in the breasts. But now, what signs should men look out for when it comes to breast cancer for them? Well, we've mentioned the lump. Mm -hmm. Uh, Feel if there is a lump. And it applies the same to women. But again, also to look for any change in the surface of uh, the breast. Is the one breast getting larger than the other? Is there maybe an appearance and we call it orange skin? And the skin becomes a little bit swollen and there are little dimples like an orange peel that appears on the surface of the breast. That is also another very important sign then immediately go and see a doctor. If there is inward uh, dimpling of uh, the nipple, if the nipple turns in on itself, Mm. also a very dangerous sign. If there's any discharge, whether it is watery or just whether it's blood stained, whatever discharge from the nipple, please have the scene to and save your life. Mm. We must remember that more men percentage-wise die of breast cancer than women. Why is that so? There is so little tissue in the male breast that if a male breast cancer develops, it spreads very quickly throughout the whole of the breast and from there it spreads to other parts of the body.
Okay. Now, now, since that you mentioned the fact that it spreads throughout the whole body, for women, they have the advantage of the fact that they, their breasts are larger and there's more tissue, right? So there's an alternative of removing it. What happens now for the men? I'm quite interested. Does it go straight into the rest of the body, the chest? What, what happens and how do they now kind of fix it or go through the measures of chemotherapy and all of that? A very important question and thank you for asking it. The uh, cancer cells will spread through the bloodstream or through the lymphatic system. And it then can infect the uh, lymph nodes mm. under the armpit and in the chest itself. And from there, it can spread. And it is important that we know that it can spread to the liver, it can spread to the skeleton, and it can spread to the brain. And uh, those aren't very good signs and very more difficult to treat once it has spread that far into the body. Wow, thank you so much, Prof. Michael Herbst, for joining us. We do hope that men will definitely take this advice, especially because it is coming from you. Now for you the listener Thank you. Great. Now for you the listener at home, remember you can find us on Facebook as VowFM, hashtag science inside, or you can tweet us at VowFM and remember to use the hashtag science inside. And up next we have Unscience and this is what it do. It is time for Unscience where we look at the stranger's side of research and get a little silly with the research that scientists make time for. Today's Unscience was produced by Bridget. Now, the last time I wanted to watch a highly anticipated movie but couldn't, I wished to have found something somewhere online to satisfy my FOMO without the information actually spoiling my anticipated movie watching experience. Have you ever felt that way, Lindo? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I don't know. It's as if people know that you're studying for your test or exam, so they decide to tease you. But literally, they tease you with the whole movie with these spoilers. Right, but you are in luck because researchers from the University of California, San Diego, from a neural networks-based SpoilerNet, is designed to catch online spoilers before they catch you off guard. They have developed an AI system that can flag spoilers in online reviews of books and TV shows. Um, before that, let's take a quick short break before Lindo tells us about what she thinks about the spoiler net. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. So, Lindo, we're speaking about the spoiler net that detects the that detects spoiler mm. spoilers um, on you know whatever show that you don't want to see before you actually see it. Okay. So yes, you were saying. Um, I must say that it's very cool what they're trying to find out or trying to get. I remember how social media spoiled um, the Avengers Endgame, the Game of Thrones finale and many others for me. Well, before I could even ask someone for a sneak peek. Mm. Hey, I'm glad to hear you saying that a whole team of researchers is looking out for mo- for our movie watching um, appetites. They really have our backs, girl. <laughs> they are hard at work ensuring that it never happens again. Yeah. Let's face it, spoilers are everywhere 
on the internet and as you have mentioned they have found a common space on social media mm. and with the rise of the internet users have now become content providers instead of being consumers but now this has given the rise to spoilers sometimes misinterpretations of the actual movie and most times fake news come to think of it this system would be excellent for you know filtering out our fake news misinformation mm. and disinformation it would work particularly well, work out particularly well for the media industry in general. Don't you think so? Yes, I definitely agree. And a professor of computer science at UC San Diego, Ndapa Nakoshele, understands that the pain of spoilers very well. Mm. I mean, I understand that pain. He explained that some websites allow people to manually flag their posts with tags that serve as spoiler alerts. However, this does not always happen. So him and his team wanted to develop an artificial intelligence tool powered by neural networks to automatically detect spoilers. That's quite amazing because it is true. They do not always work because some spoilers don't really scream spoiler, but they sort of do make the entire movie, if you know what I mean. So tell me more about how they actually achieve this. On a theoretical level, researchers want to better understand how people write spoilers and what kind of linguistic patterns and common knowledge mark as mark a sentence as a spoiler. So the researchers developed a tool that could be used to build a browser extension to shield people from spoilers. Wait, but now how these extensions read the language then? To train and test SpoilerNet, mm-hmm. the UC San Diego team went looking for large data sets of sentences containing spoilers with the phrase spoiler alert. And guess how many they found? None. So they created their own by collecting more than 1.3 million book reviews flagged with spoiler tags by book reviewers. The tags comprise of sentences that include spoilers and hide them behind a view spoiler link in the text. So the reviews were collected from Goodreads, a social networking site that allows people to track what they read and share thoughts and reviews with other readers. Nice, but why don't the usual ones, such as the flagging of spoilers on websites, not work? Well, according to PhD student in computer science at UC San Diego, Mengting Wan, this is the first data set with spoiler annotations at the scale and at such a fine-grained level. The team found that spoiler sentences tend to clump together in the latter parts of reviews. But they also found that different users have different standards to tag spoilers and neural networks needed to be carefully calibrated to take this into account. Oh, okay. I see. So in a way, they had to look at the wording singularly, you know, in a sense, make keywords so as to allow the systems to make better sense of what they were looking for in terms of the spoilers. Correct. In addition, the same word may have different semantic meanings in different contexts. Mm. For example, green is just a color, right? In one book review. But it can be the name of an important character and a signal for spoiler in another book. Identifying and understanding these differences is challenging according to one. You know, to be honest, I can totally understand because there are plenty of strange characters on social media. And besides that, we all don't think similarly. What would one categorize as a spoiler and some may not? Precisely. Therefore, the researchers trained SpoilerNet on 80% of the reviews on Goodreads, running the text through several layers of neural networks. The system could could detect 
predict spoilers with 89 to 92% accuracy. They also ran SpoilerNet on a data set of more than 16,000 single-sentence reviews of about 880 TV shows. The accuracy of the tool to detect spoilers was 74 to 80%. Okay. I must say, this is pretty impressive. And with time, I can definitely foresee how artificial intelligence in the future could outsmart human beings just considering the points I mentioned earlier on. And just by the virtue of artificial intelligence being trained to think in a specific way that it will always make the right choice because, I mean, it is a program. Yes, but is AI really good or bad for us? I mean, that that would only make us seem stupid. But, oh well, that is a conversation for another day. It certainly is. But what about its error detection systems? Well, most of the errors came from the system being distracted by words that are usually loaded and revelatory. For example, murder or killed. That's not bad at all. I can see how the system could be used to filter out things like porn and age-inappropriate material, especially on the electronic devices of, you know, the young children. Exactly. And I must say, I am looking forward to see how Goodreads' data set can be used as a powerful tool to train algorithms to detect spoilers in different types of content, say, tweets containing spoilers as well. Yeah, I really must say, I cannot wait to see this being used for other more useful things as well. Not that I have anything against movies or anything like that. This, you know, Lindo, like, honestly, we need to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Have you ever experienced a spoiler? (laughs) You know, you were chilling at home and then all of a sudden the movie that you wanted to watch this weekend was spoiled. Trust me, it happens all the time. Especially with these WhatsApp statuses, hey? Exactly. You're just there for your study break and then boom, you're watching the entire movie in short 15-second snippets. Like, Mm. why? Why Why do people do that? that? (laughs) You know, also you as a consumer, please do put spoiler alerts because we don't want to be spoiled before we yeah. watch the movie. <laughs> this week's in science was sourced from sciencedaily.com and the music and sound clips from Orange Sounds and Ben Sounds. That was unusual, unlikely, and completely unscience. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. In our final interview for tonight, we chat to Dr. Geeta Naidu, who is an oncologist, and she will be talking to us about cancer in adolescents. Now, an estimate of 1,000 South African children are diagnosed with cancer annually. However, it's estimated that half of the children with cancer in South Africa are never diagnosed, and this is due to a lack of knowledge regarding the disease and how it presents itself in children. As a result, many children are diagnosed too late, but fortunately enough, many childhood cancers are treatable with high treatment success rates between 70% and 80% in well-resourced countries, while approximately 80% of children with cancer in Africa die without access to adequate um, adequate care, excuse me. So to have a better understanding of this, we are going to speak to Dr. Geeta Naidu, who is a as I've mentioned, an oncologist at the Donald Gordon Medical Center, as well as at Baragwanath Hospital. And she also lectures here at WITS. A very warm welcome to the Science Inside, Gita. 
Thank you very much. Good evening to you. Thank you. Now let's get into it. The prevalence of cancers among young children in South Africa. How, how bad are the statistics and in comparison to the world in general? Well, at the moment we, um, we have a tumor registry where we record every patient that is diagnosed with cancer by the pediatricians across the country. Um, and unfortunately, some children may be treated by adult oncologists in private care, and these children never get onto our registry. But that can't be large numbers. But we see about 1,500 patients. Last year, we had close to 1,500 patients on our registry. But we know, given our population, we should be seeing closer to 2,500 patients with cancer children and um, that would be from the newborn period to about 15 years so it's a great concern to us pediatric oncologists that we are missing um, about maybe 800 to 1,000 children with cancer where are these children who's treating them are they being diagnosed um, what's going on with these kids so we are we're very um, aware that we have to increase uh, awareness of childhood cancer and our unit at chris honey hospital has mm-hmm. come up with warning signs of childhood cancer and these are being used throughout south africa and also in many other developing world countries Sure, and Baragwanath Hospital is a is a is a public um, hospital. So, yes. how are the numbers there in terms of the reporting or bringing in children who have cancer? Well, we have uh, we run the largest children's cancer unit in the country, mm-hmm. and we treat all types of cancers. And we are rather fortunate and in a unique position that we treat children from the newborn period to 19 years of age. And we see cancers across the spectrum, all types of cancers. So, yeah. Dr. Naidu, um, why is it that children, um, the treatment of cancer for children is is more successful than the rate in adults? Um, Yeah, I think it's different types of cancers. Adult cancers are very different from what pediatric cancers are. A lot of pediatric cancers are what we call embryonal and fetal cancers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that may be the one reason, because they're actually quite different from adult cancers. The second reason is that uh, we are very aggressive with treating children because we want them to to be able to survive, to not have too many toxicities from the treatment, and to be able to survive to be a healthy, productive individual in society until they're 80 years old. So the treatment programs may be a little bit different. But also, I mean, adults come with their own complications. Some may have hypertension, diabetes, arthritis, heart disease. And together now to be treated for for cancer, maybe more complications. But um, I think for children, we tend to be very aggressive in how we treat them. Mm. And there's a rise as well um, of cancer cases in children. Why is that the case? What is causing um, this rise? Yeah, well, I think it's a couple of reasons contribute to that. Uh One is greater awareness, so people are more aware of childhood cancer. They trained to look earlier for the signs and symptoms of cancer. 
that may be the first reason. The second reason is that many, many children would have succumbed to uh, infectious diseases, neonatal deaths, uh, gastroenteritis, respiratory tract infections. But I think because we have um, improved the quality of those um, diseases, we have many vaccines uh, that prevent um, these sorts of deaths in children. So more children are surviving, but they actually develop cancer. The other reason is that we know that in the developed world with industrialization, there are more cancers. And as the, the, the general health of a society uh, in, improves, then you make this transition and progression to different patterns of diseases. And then we in the developing world, unfortunately, then have the double burden of disease. Mm-hmm. As our conditions for our children improve, but we still have the infectious diseases that we have to deal with, for example, mal- malaria and tuberculosis and HIV. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. In your experience, what, is, what are the challenges or advantages of treating cancer amongst children? There are many challenges. Sure. Firstly, I think it depends where you are, where you are working. And um, for me, that would be the most important thing. Because, for example, at Krasani Baragwanath Hospital, we have a very, very, very wide referral area. There's only about 11 places, centers in the country that treat cancer, and that's relatively new over the last five years. Previously, um, it was just about four or five centers that were treating childhood cancer, So, which means our referral area is very, very wide. So as we get more into the rural communities, um, patients don't have easy access to, to hospitals, um, uh, they have live great distances away from hospital transport costs are expensive mm-hmm. so these children you know present late to these hospitals and um, uh, so um, then, then when they get to us they're already presenting with advanced disease so this is one of our big 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 problems we want to increase awareness of childhood cancer but at the same time to increase it at an early stage so to me that's one of the biggest challenges of of treating children with cancer in in our country in other in other african countries uh, the the biggest challenge there is challenges like ours that patients will present late but when these patients do present uh, to hospitals they don't have basic equipment basic surgery basic chemotherapy basic mm. laboratory facilities to to assist with the diagnosis of these cancers and often these cancers are aggressive you cannot delay the treatment of these cancers sure so you've mentioned the challenges are there any advantages for the treatment of cancer amongst children you mean well i mean hopefully then if we get early cancers that these children will survive Right, so there is no, there's not much of a difference between treating an older person versus treating a younger child. Well, I can't really comment on the adult cancers and their treatment, right. but um, the children, the aim is that we want to cure them, but also that they do not have too many side effects from the chemotherapy. Okay. So, Doctor, do you see certain cancers being more aggressive in specific um, ethnic groups? Um, not really. I haven't seen that, but we know that some cancers are more aggressive than other cancers. Yeah. And when we say aggressive, we mean that they 
the 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 cancer cells multiply rapidly. Okay. So these children can present, can get sick, you know, acutely ill, and before they actually come to us, the disease is already spreading to other parts of the body. We know that you have those types of cancers. We also know that you have other cancers in children that may be a little bit slow growing. And I can only imagine the burden that it kind of a person who has cancer kind of carries, um, and that's speaking in terms of an adult. So now, how do you guys deal with making a child understand their disease as young as they could be, for as young as eight, year, eight years old? Hmm. You see, this is the problem, that um, we treat a wide range of ages, from mm. the newborn period to 19 Young children don't really know what's going on, mm. not at all. So the parents suffer a lot. So, you know, they are the ones who are going through the pain and the difficulties. And also, remember at Krasani Barawana, we are dealing with a community that has a high unemployment rate, a high HIV rate, yeah. uh, a low educational levels. So, you know, this now actually places a huge burden on the family. And uh, many of our parents are employed in the informal sector, and they may not be able to take time off from work to, to be with the child because they may have other children to look after. And, you know, if you're working in the informal sector, you're not given uh, family responsibility leave or maternity leave or things like that. So that places a huge, huge, huge burden. And these children are really, really sick, and they need mm-hmm. their parents to be with them. And often they are there alone. The problem for me, the, the, the group that experiences major problems are the teenagers. And I think it's because of their age, they understand what's going on with them. It's the loss of control in their lives. Yeah. It's a time when they should be planning for their future. They should be focusing on their education, thinking about what lies ahead in their lives. And actually, we, we sort of take all that away from them. They're in hospital. They're really, really sick. Uh, life of their friends and their colleagues are all going on and they feel like um, you know, they, it's very, very difficult to motivate these kids, to keep them positive, to show them that once they are cured, they will also get back into their lives. So the teenage group is an extremely, extremely difficult. They lose their hair, they have many skin changes, nail changes, and that's a, a time when they're aware of themselves yeah. and how they look. And so I find that a very, very, very difficult group of patients, and uh, they suffer a lot emotionally, um, physically, mm-hmm. mentally. I mean, earlier on, we were speaking to Dr. Michael Herbst, and one of the things he mentioned was the importance of um, adults staying away from tobacco. You know, for us, we learn about skin cancer and how much you should apply, you know, your sunscreens and all of that. And obviously, Mm -hmm. for lung cancer, avoid smoking. Now, what's Mm -hmm. the least that these kids can actually do? Or do they only face, you know, the cancers that are hereditary or what, what, what can they do? There are very, kids... very few childhood cancers that are inherited. Really? Very few. One of them is cancer of the eye. Oh, okay. So, um, because nobody really knows what causes cancer in children, with adults, I mean, we've identified smoking, alcohol, red meat consumption, obesity, and all of these factors, we know that um, increase uh, your uh, chances of getting cancer. Unfortunately, with children, we do not know that. 
there are some changes that occur embryonally or fetally and these may be responsible for cancer it may be viruses we don't really know what causes cancer in children Mm. And you spoke about um, the food, the diet um, that children should consume. What would you suggest should be avoided, especially in a children's diet that will increase their susceptibility to getting cancer? Well, as I said, um, you know, with children, we don't know what causes cancer. But the most important thing is that children should have a healthy diet. Mm. And unfortunately for us now, as much as we are a country of extremes, we have severe malnutrition in terms of uh, stunting, weight, uh, lack of weight gain. But on the other hand, we have the big problem of obesity in children. And besides things like diabetes and heart disease, we know that uh, if you are a fat child, you will probably be a fat adolescent and probably be a fat adult. And there are many cancers we know that are, uh, are associated with adult um, obesity. And these things start in your childhood. For example, gallbladder cancer, pancreas, and many other cancers that they feel that obesity may be a cause of these cancers. But those are adults. But as far as children are concerned, you want to prevent the obesity when you are a child. Mm. As I say, if you're a fat child, the chances are you'll be a fat adolescent and you'll be a fat adult. So you, you're going to increase your chances of getting an adult type of cancer. It doesn't really affect the childhood cancer. All right. And for the treatment option, what are the, treat- the treatment options for children who have cancer? Mm. The main uh, the mainstays of treatment for children in cancer is chemotherapy surgery and radiotherapy. So it will depend which cancer you have, what stage you have, and how we treat it. So those are the, the, the basics of care for childhood cancer. Wow, so thank you so much, um, Dr. Geeta Naidu, for sharing um, your take on children um, cancer. Thank you so much for joining us on The Science Inside. My pleasure. Good night. Good night. So, Lindo, Mm -hmm. you spoke about the face transplant when you gave us the news. Talk to us about that. How how do you feel about that? I must say, it is is actually my favorite news story for the week. Right, even me? (laughs) Yes. So, this person is literally the first black person or black man Mm -hmm. to actually receive a full face transplant. Um, I think one of the sources actually mentioned that uh, there were were people who were black Mm -hmm. who did uh, face transplants, but then it wasn't full. So you'd find that it's partial. They do only on one side of the body and then, I don't know, the next would do on the face just a bit. And then, mm-hmm. but this one is just literally full face transplant. And I think it's quite good looking at the rate that um, black people actually give or, or donate organs. It's very low. Right. It's very low. Mm-hmm. And also looking at the news itself, it does say that one thing we should do as people who, of color is to be free around the topic of True. giving away organs, internal organs, whatever organ there is. Because mm. if you look at the white, at, at, at other races or whites specifically, 
it's double the percentage. Mm. So they're more willing to give, um, you know, organs or whatever transplants from their bodies once they pass on. I don't know. What do you think? Would you give, would you donate an organ? I mean, an organ, yes. yes. Um, to be honest, when I think of an organ, I don't think of my face okay. as being part of an organ. You know, you think it's like the kidney, it's the liver, it's the usual things. Yeah. But when it comes to the face, it's different because I don't know how anyone that I know would feel if they saw my face yeah. on someone else's especially yeah. after they've been to my funeral you yeah. know what i'm saying okay so you feel like giving <laughs> giving your um an internal organ is not an issue so an the tech guy is literally laughing <laughs> an internal organ is not a problem okay but i mean you have to think about this lindo now you're walking down the street and you see nondu's face mm. on someone else but you know you've been to my funeral i mean they will alter they will alter a few things you still the person still keeps their eyes they still keep their eyes. They still keep their smile, their nose. It's just your skin, no, dude. It's <laughs> right. like face. Okay, well, you put it like that. That's that's okay. If we're talking about just trans- transplanting no, skin, no, no, trust me, they, it's fine. I don't think they'll see body two of no, no, once you cast yeah. No, I don't. No. That's too much. But it is true that, um, especially in the black community, yeah. um, transplanting is something that is very... It's, it's overlooked. Yeah. We don't even think about it. You know, when someone dies, we don't talk about it. And I don't know why that is, Lindo. Mm. I mm. think mostly it comes back to just cultural backgrounds, mm. what people believe in. You mm. know, most people believe in the fact that you should die as you are, mm. full, with all your organs, nothing missing. That's why sometimes I think once um, a part of a body is missing with a person who's been murdered or whatever, they will try and find that missing part and then the funeral can commence, you know. So right. I think it's, it comes with our different beliefs, especially in the African culture. We have different belief systems that's with true. our different tribes. So I guess that's the only issue that's just stopping us from okay. donating and giving, you know. Exactly. More about organs. Sure, but I think we should look into it because yeah. it does help other people. Stay tuned, we return right after the break. If it's land, we've got just the line for you. Call our landline land line on 011 717 So on tonight's show, we spoke to Prof. Michael Herbst from the cancer organization who spoke to us about the prevalence of breast cancer in men, especially here in South Africa. And on Unscience, we uncovered an AI system that is able to detect spoilers in book and movie reviews to ensure that one's movie watching is not spoilt by those nasty spoilers. Mm-hmm. Then finally, we got into an interview with Dr. Gita Naidu, who's a pediatric oncologist at both the Donald Golden Medical Center and at the Baragwanath Hospital. She spoke about the causes of the prevalence of cancer in young children and the developments as far as treatment is concerned. So a big thank you to all our guests featured on tonight's show, namely Professor Michael Herbst and Gita Naidu. Our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Libere and also Nundumi Solohuzo, Zainab Bayet, and also the guy behind the tech is Sipiwe Muloi. You can access our podcast on vits.journalism.co.za slash science. And you can also get us on social media handles on Facebook, The Science Inside, hashtag Science Inside if you're tweeting as at VowFM. Have yourselves a very good night. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on The Science Inside. 
The Science Inside Podcast.